0: You, you saw me standing, standing alone, alone.
1: Julio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio, 18 stories above, beautiful downtown Chicago, and we are here until 4. Uh, it is Monday, so that means my dad's going to call in and tell a joke because it's a jokey, jokey, jokey time. That's coming up later on. Uh, we got some Carson comedy classics. Uh, you can watch the Johnny Carson show every night on Antenna TV, and we always like to play back some comedy, either some stand-up or a sketch or an interview. Well, we got some stand-up from uh, Franklin Ajay. From 1988. Um, and uh, we're also going to talk about outdated words that age you, uh, instantly age you. Uh, some expensive mistakes as well. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. Uh, our guest right now is our good friend Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. You can check out com If you have any uh, space-related questions or comments... Give us a call. 312-981-7200. Let's welcome Rod to the show. Hello, Rod. Good morning. How are you? All right. How are you, sir?
2: I'm okay. I saw Greyhound today. That was a thrill.
1: Yeah, I watched it over the
2: weekend. Did you? I did. I liked it very much. It was just nonstop, and they didn't spend a lot of time on character development other than Tom Hanks, did they?
1: (laughs) No, they didn't. They didn't. Now, it was a solid movie. I enjoyed it.
2: Yeah I, yeah, I was really impressed. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, Rod, tell everybody about yourself.
2: Well, I'm old enough to have been born about the same time the space age was and uh, grew up during those heady years. It's funny. Somebody asked me today about what's the difference between a writer my age, I'm 63, and somebody who might be in their 30s and 40 or 40s who are writing about space and related fields. And I thought about it for a minute, and I thought if you're talking about the space program anyway and the space race, there's a lot of younger people writing about it and they're very excited and they're good writers. They're very good writers in a lot of cases, but you know, you do get a different perspective as I'm sure you remember having known some of that stuff that happened before the space station and before the the later part of the shuttle program. So it was really a blessing to have been around to have seen that and to have experienced that. So I grew up being totally enamored of that. So other people were following sports, baseball and football and later basketball. Um, I was, an astronaut groupie, although I wasn't following him around, but I was following what they did. Right. And then I got into documentary filmmaking and uh, different kinds of television production. Then finally, in the mid 2000s, started writing space books. And I've written 17 and I'm working on number 18 now. And I also edit, as you usually point out, Ad Astro magazine for the National Space Society, which yeah. is great fun.
1: Ad Astro is a, is, a, is a terrific magazine. Uh, tell me a little bit more about it
2: it's been around since the 80s in one form or another, and it's won a bunch of awards and so forth. And back in those days, a lot of pro space organizations had print magazines, but gradually one by one, they've kind of winked out of existence. So I think at this point, it's just us and maybe one or two other groups. And it's about 64 pages. The nice thing about our magazine is, because we're a nonprofit, we don't have much advertising, and they're just three or four pages. So when you open it up, instead of having to flip past endless advertising and having all those little blowing cards fall out to ask you to subscribe, if you're getting it, you're already a member of the society. So it's all just content. So we try to have some historical content in every issue. We try to look forward to the big picture of space development and settling human beings out there. And just look at some of the various issues. You know, people ask sometimes, well, what what does space settlement mean? And that's one of the key tenets of the the NSS. And, yeah, it means putting people out in space colonies, either in, in some kind of orbit around Earth or elsewhere, and putting them on Mars and the Moon. But it also means all the things you have to do to make that work, like figuring out, for example, how to deal with dust on the Moon. There's no weather on the moon, and that dust is very fine-grained and very sharp-edged, and it just wreaks havoc with spacesuits and instrumentation and everything else you have to have to do this successfully. So there's there's stories on things like that, too, that you might not think about normally.
1: All right. And uh, Ad Astra uh, is the magazine, and uh, it's a terrific magazine, Rob.
2: Thanks, and it's available online now, so you can get on Amazon and whatever Apple's calling there book magazine repository this month <laughs> okay I think it's apple apple periodicals apple magazines now is that what it's it is the itunes i think so yeah, yeah. Okay. they changed it again <laughs> yeah I uh, it you got to
1: keep it up got to keep up with this so but you know before uh we had john rod we were talking uh, ufos yeah and uh the senate intelligence committee confirms that the u.s navy has a ufo
2: task force yeah it costs money to run apparently uh-huh. Well, tell me a little bit about uh-huh. that, if you know anything. Um, just that uh, Marco Rubio is sort of leading the charge because he's the head of the Intelligence Committee. And um, I think they... Partly, I think they want to know where the money's going. And partly, you know, the first conclusion that's easy to draw is, oh, he's a UFO junkie and he wants to know all about Roswell. And, of course, there are a lot of people who want to know about Roswell. Hell, I want to know about Roswell. I've never been there. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you look into a little deeper... And it's not just analysts, but also people inside uh, the beltway saying, well, what they think this is really about as much as anything is they want to know if if there can be a unified structure within the military to look at unidentified aerial phenomena, which includes UFOs. And all UFO means is unidentified flying object. So I, I think at the core of this, Probably more than wanting to know if we've been visited by aliens is wanting to know what the threats are on our own planet. So, for instance, you and I talked before about the the tic tac UFO reports and so forth back from the early two thousands with the Navy, and um, you know, there's a, a fairly broad consensus about this that it's a very good chance that these are some kind of drones from a foreign power. Now, one of the the pushbacks on that has been, had uh, I got some email after the last time I was on your show about this, that the observations of them show them moving impossibly fast and changing course impossibly quickly and altitudes impossibly quickly in ways that normal air-breathing craft couldn't do. But that's assuming that you take the observations verbatim. And, you know, pilots are as good as they are human eye is notoriously not good at, at tracking distance and altitude and speeds, so uh, even even looking at the radar imagery, which is pretty low resolution, or I should say FLIR because it was the specific kind, um, you know it's hard to tell exactly what these things are doing so applying traditional models to it hasn't been very successful but that doesn't necessarily mean they're extraterrestrial in origin so getting back to the original question i think there's a concern in the military bandwidth if you will about these different branches of the of the military of the armed forces sharing data better about what they're seeing and right. seeing if it represents a domestic threat or not
1: right okay uh, rod hang on okay Yes, sir. I want to talk more about this, too. Uh, Rod Pyle is with us, uh, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. If you have any space-related questions or space concerns or any of that kind of stuff, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. Nick DiGilio and we will return. Hello, Nick Degilio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio here until uh, 4 a.m. Uh, coming up, we've got some classic uh, comedy from uh, the Johnny Carson show, frankly, this morning featuring uh, Franklin Ajay. Outdated words that instantly age you. And my dad's going to call in and tell a joke. 312-981-7200. That's our number if you have a space question of some kind. Uh, give us a call because our friend Rod Pyle is with us. Uh, Rod, welcome. Hey there. So uh, the, the the what was the uh, the date again, uh, Tom? That dates back to like the first recorded UFO. Is like sixteen. What was it 16, was the sixty. Was like sixteen something?
3: That was uh, sixteen thirty nine, March first, sixteen thirty nine. John Winthrop. The then governor of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts.
1: Wow. Now, doesn't that seem like a long, long time ago? I mean, I, I was surprised when I heard that the first UFO uh, reported was in the 1600s.
2: That's really interesting, actually. And of course, that was before there was any such thing as aircraft. So, right. unless you buy into the whole swamp gas discussion, could have been a lot of things, I suppose.
1: Yeah. Well, what, what, what huh. the, the the swamp gas thing? Let's let's uh, explain that.
2: As I understand it, it's it's, uh, the idea that marshes, you know, there's a lot of organic decay in marshes of, of plants and so forth, and they they start forming methane, and that somehow that becomes that ignites, and you see these balls of flame that can last for a little while, depending on, you know, wind conditions and all that. I'd never seen anything like that. The weirdest thing I ever saw was a high tension line that had a. It was, I guess it was arcing or shorting out. There was this big ball of blue electricity going down the wire and then actually blew off the wire and kind of looked like it would hover. I guess that's a plasma at that point. Mm. And that was pretty fascinating. But that's as close as I've gotten. And, you know, I've been reading about UFOs since I was about six or eight. And, and, you know, I'm like anybody else. I want to see one, but I just haven't seen a good sighting yet. I've seen a lot of things. I mean, I've spent I don't know how many hundreds of nights out under the stars about the most amazing thing, I've, I've seen two things that were jaw-dropping. One was a huge green, it's called a bolide. It's just a very large meteor that went from one horizon to the other and exploded about halfway overhead. Um, it didn't hear anything because it was way up high. Yeah. And the other thing was there was a meteor shower in, I think, April called the Leonids. that's famous for every, I think, 33 years uh, being extraordinarily heavy. And just by sheer luck, as a kid in Pasadena, California, I was out looking at the stars that night, and I knew there was supposed to be a meteor shower. And when they say shower, you know, it's maybe one every minute or two. It's usually not a big deal. Well, this just opened up like God was pouring a salt shaker in the sky. Wow, it was terrifying, but really spectacular. And I feel very, very blessed to have seen it. Wow, that's amazing. So, but th- you can imagine in 1650, oh. right? Yeah. If you saw that, what would you think? I mean, you'd have to ascribe something supernatural to it because we didn't know what they were.
1: Yeah. When we were talking about that earlier, I was like, man, there was, there was, so there's nothing else in the sky. And, you know, at that
2: point. Well, and that's why, you know, when when you talk about, I've written about Mars a lot, you know, we start off by talking about, you know, how the ancient world looked at Mars and why they thought it was so different and all that. I and mean, one thing is it's red, so it was the color of blood and fire, and so they ascribed all kinds of death and mischief and mayhem to it. But also, it, it made these weird motions of the sky, not, not that you'd see them in any given night, but if you tracked it from night to night, to the point at which, because of the the way the orbits intersect, with, or, or uh, visually intersect with Earth, so it goes retrograde as so it's going backwards for a right. while, and then goes back the other direction and of course back then you didn't have sodium lamps every 10 feet lighting up your neighborhood so when you looked up at the sky you saw everything which is kind of what i think you're saying and it's real different i mean i don't know that many people anymore that have seen a truly dark night sky where you see that i was actually out with with one small group uh out in the desert and even in california desert by the time you get away from one city, you're getting near another one. So it's not dark, dark, dark. Even there, you have to go out in the ocean if you're really want true darkness. And one of the kids got scared because they saw this white stripe in the sky. They so said, "What's that?" And I said, "That's the Milky Way. That's the edge of our galaxy." And they're like, "Wow, I didn't know you could see
1: that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've told you this before, Rod. When I was on um, when I was on a trip to uh, to Ireland. Um, my ex and I were in the kind of, we were coming, we were walking back from a pub in the kind of middle of nowhere. And uh, it's the first time I ever looked up and saw, cause there was no, there was no lights. There was nothing. We were walking down a road and it was the first time I actually looked up and saw what this, what this, what this nighttime sky really looks like. Yeah. You know, because I've lived, I've lived in the city my entire life and here we are in the middle of nowhere, walking down this dirt road back to our, you know, back to our hotel. Uh, and I, I just couldn't believe it. I just looked up and I was like, oh, my God. Uh, so this is what it really looks like.
2: Yeah, it's really something. And sadly, it's going away decade by decade. And there's actually a group called the, it's the Dark Sky Association or something that's trying to campaign to have you know, fewer lights or at least shielded lights. In, in certain areas so that there will be more darkness so that people can actually go do amateur astronomy and see the beauty in the night sky. But then right as that's actually starting to pick up speed, then you get Elon Musk trying to put 10, 15, 20, 30,000 satellites up. So everywhere you look, there's going to be, be a little white moving dot. So it'll be really pretty, but it's going to make it hard to look at stars. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it's too bad. I, you know, I, I hope people, you know, would be able to at least... You know, a couple of times, just see what the what the sky actually looks like, not what you think it looks like. Yeah. living in the city because it's really different. It's really different.
2: It, it is, and that's why. I mean, it's a shame because a lot of planetariums are sort of going under because they're not a popular thing to do anymore because it, it's, it's a pretty slow attention span kind of activity. But if you've never been to one, a good planetarium is a, is an almost perfect replication of the night sky, and it's it's pretty breathtaking
1: when it's done right. Well, wow, we have a great planetarium here. Uh yeah, you do uh, in you in do. Chicago. The Adler is just amazing. I, I I can't tell you the number of times I've been there when I was a kid. I haven't been there in a long time, but I can't tell you the number of times I've been there when I was a kid. Um and it's
2: just beautiful. It really is. It is. And and you see them I'm still in touch with the people up at Griffith Observatory in LA where I used to work, and they have a I think a six hundred C planetarium up there. And they when I was working there in the eighties we had an old Zeiss projector that was just this masterpiece of German clockwork. Everything was mechanical. And it was sensational. You know, we could go in there after hours and set it wherever we wanted, whatever night sky, whatever year. Um now of course everything's being modernized, so a lot of these are going electronic and uh they, they still look great, but it's much more entertainment oriented than it used to be. And you know, that's just that's progress and yeah. you've got to be okay with that. But there is that that moment where you first would dim the lights or the, the planetarium operator would dim the lights and it would go down from the blue horizon lights to, to pure dark. And, and if they're good at it, they kind of do it in increments. And each time they go a little further, you get a little gasp from the audience. Yeah. And finally they dump them entirely and they go, <gasps> yep. and say, Yeah, that's what it's supposed to look like, you guys.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. It really is. It is? Uh, they, they used to have a uh, right around, I don't know if they still do this at the Adler, uh, but uh, at Christmas they would have uh, they would have a special about the mm-hmm. the the star um, right, and it was beautiful. We used to go every year. It, it, it wasn't really uh, Christmas time until we went to the Adler.
2: Yeah, and it's usually there's usually something about what was the star of Bethlehem? Yeah. You know, was was a star? Was that a comet? Were they looking at Venus? Was it a UFO? What was it? And uh, I don't think anybody's ever answered the question to complete satisfaction, but it makes for a good show every single year.
1: Oh yeah, no, it's, it was one of my favorite things to do at Christmas time. I haven't gone in. I haven't gone in, haven't gone in a long, long time. Um, well, now you got to go. Yeah, I do. As soon, as soon as everything reopens, yeah.
2: Well, there is that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that little <whole So>, problem.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now you mentioned the Griffin. Uh, the Griffith, uh, uh Observatory is that, that's the that's that's the one that's featured in Rebel
2: Without a Cause, right? It is, and it's also uh, featured in the show Rocky Jones Space Ranger. So we all remember it from Miracle Without a Cause, of course. Wait wait, a minute. I'll get there. And there's a statue of, 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 you know, James Dean down front. But there was this awful show made in the 50s. I shouldn't say awful. It was about as good as anything else science fiction in that era called Rocky Jones Space Ranger. (laughs) In the opening of the show, he drives up in an old Jaguar XK120 with the top down, and doesn't open the door. He leaps over the door like like James Bond would ten years later, and runs up the observatory stairs because that was Space Command headquarters or something like that.
1: Wow! What, yeah, I don't even this this I don't even recall the name of that show.
2: Yeah, I know it's it's about as obscure as Radar Men from the Moon. <laughs> Did you ever see that? No. Oh, so that was made in the. Late 30s, early 40s, I think, it was a Republic Studios serial. So oh, So, you okay. know, they were half-hour or whatever. Yeah. And they ran in the theaters on Saturday matinees. And, you know, it was Buck Rogers-type spaceships flying around, making a sound like an airplane with 19 propellers and smoke and sparks coming out the back and dropping instantly the stage floor. All right. So it wasn't very convincing. And then you can see the wires and all that. Um and the thing that got me was, you know, it's supposed to be invading moon men, right? There's a few variants on it, but that was the general theme, the guys from the moon. But everybody, except for the, the grand poobah who, you know, had a funny costume and weird things over his eyes, for some reason, all the henchmen were just guys in suits with fedoras and snub-nosed 38s. And I remember <laughs> as a kid watching this thinking... Where are the ray guns? This even isn't, isn't even as good as Lost in Space, which I caught the other night, by the way. I hadn't watched broadcast TV in a long time, but where I am now, I'm I'm actually wired up so I can get over-the-air TV. And by gosh, they're playing Lost in Space at two in the morning, where it belongs. Yeah, it was every bit as awful as I remembered.
1: Yeah, I grew up watching that show, so I have a I have a soft spot for it, uh, and for and for uh, and for uh, Doctor Smith. <laughs> What was
2: wrong with Dr. Smith? I mean, <laughs> there are a whole bunch, by- you know, as an adult, you look at him and you think, okay, I've got some questions about this guy. Yeah, proclivities, but uh, yeah, he was a little over the top, but apparently he was a very serious actor, and even in recent years when he was interviewed about it, he'd talk about it in a the very thespian sort of way. Oh,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: but yeah. Just- Look at him and think, yeah, but it didn't look like you were taking all that seriously. Well, but, you know, it's, it's, it,
1: it's interesting how that character changed, because at the beginning, he, yeah. was, he was supposed to be just like this straight-up villain. And then he just said, oh, no, not me, take the boy. And then it just became... Yeah, oh, that's good.
3: That's It that <laughs> became really ridiculous. Now, now, wait a minute. Now, Tom, you found a little uh, more info on... Well, yeah. I've, Rod mentioned this about the henchmen just being guys in fedoras with snub-nosed And this eights. is on the show... This is on the show, uh, Rocky Jones Radar Space Race Radar right the here. moon. R- okay. Uh well this, this is a little bit about stuff Rocky Jones Space Ranger this is oh, an, actual, okay. an actual paragraph here uh, although many strange worlds were visited <laughs> the alien characters usually spoke ama- American English and always appeared as normal humans albeit in bizarre costumes and environments the script writers did not appear to know the difference between planets, moons stars and constellations so that the specific <laughs> locations Rocky and his sidekicks visited are generally unknown to astronomers
2: <laughs> that sounds about right well and then, you know, and that was that was early on. Then you get to Lost in Space when we did know better because the space age was in full flower then. But you still got, everybody's got two legs and two arms and two yeah. nostrils and two eyes. They may look like a giant styrofoam carrot, but they're still bipedal. And it got to the point, I think I told you before, I, I, I took a directing class from a guy who had directed a number of episodes of Lost in Space years ago. Really nice guy. And after class, I got to talking to him once, and I said, I have to ask you a question. He said, shoot. And I said, lost in space. And he kind of smirked and looked around like he hoped nobody was overhearing us. And I said, <laughs> you're a great director. Why? And he said, it's very simple, my boy. Alimony. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and I said, tell me the truth, though. It really looked like you were dumpster diving to get those costumes together, and that the scripts were kind of written around whatever you could find. And he said, that was it. Erwin Allen was this really tight-fisted producer from that era, did some good shows, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, Time Tunnel, you know. But they got towards the later seasons of Lost in Space. The budgets were so small, they were squeezing every dime out of it they could. They would literally, apparently, go around the studio. She would have been cast off. So that's why one week you'd see aliens that looked pretty good. Then the next week, I think the low point I remember was aliens that had sheer nylon stockings pulled over their faces and white sequin top hats and capes because some vampire movie had thrown away a bunch of stuff and they found it and said, okay, write it in. It's fantastic.
1: All right, Rod, hang on, okay? You bet. Rod Pyle is with us, uh, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. If you want to jump in, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. More space talk with Rod coming up here on 720 WGN. (laughs) Nick Pagilio here on 720 WGN. Um, During the break, I was just uh, scrolling around on the internet. Uh, Kelly Preston passed away. Um, She's only 57. Uh, She had a few years battle of uh, breast cancer and she she passed away. So uh, condolences to the whole Travolta family. Uh, I love Kelly Preston. I, I just thought she was I thought she was great and it's uh, really sad to hear that she passed away. She's only fifty seven years old. So sorry to bring down the mood, but um yeah. So uh let's get back to our talk about space. If you want to jump in, it's 312-981-7200. one two nine eight one seven two hundred. We're talking with Rod Pyle. He's our good buddy, author journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. You can check out rodpilebooks.com for more information. And hello, Rod. Hi there. Hey. So uh let's talk about a day in space.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um this is something that uh was put together over the last couple of months. So the National Space Society does a yearly conference every year called the International Space Development Conference, and we invite big thinkers from yesterday, today, and tomorrow to come talk about just about everything. There's I think uh 30 tracks with multiple speakers on each. So there's tons of stuff It lasts about four days, wow. usually about 1,000, 1,500 people. And we move around to various cities. But, of course, this year we had to cancel like everybody else. And we're a volunteer organization, so there's a lot of much mm, we do about it. So finally a small group has got together and said, okay, let's do something virtual. But we didn't want to do a Zoom call for all the reasons <laughs> we've discussed before, yeah. like Zoom bombing and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So we decided to give it the full-court press as much as we could. So I sent out production kits to a bunch of people that were our keynote speakers, about uh, six six new ones. And then we had some stuff that we had already recorded before COVID hit. So a couple lights, microphones, so forth, just to really try to bring it up a notch. So on July 16th at uh, 8 o'clock Pacific and 11 o'clock Eastern time, we'll be starting a seven-hour day. And we've got speakers ranging from, we've got uh, Buzz Aldrin doing an exclusive interview with our president, Jeff Notkin, who used to be on the show Meteorite Men, uh, he was the host there,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, interviewing Buzz. And that that was really fun. So I've edited all this stuff, so I know it way better than I want to, because I've spent, you know, a couple of days with each one of them. <laughs> but, right, right. Um, so that, uh, we've got another astronaut panel with Al Worden, for, uh, Fred Hayes of Apollo 13, uh, Walt Cunningham for Apollo 7 and Jerry Griffin, who was a flight director at NASA during the Apollo years. And that was recorded about a year ago when Al Worden was still alive. So that they have a lot of great stories to tell. We've got an astrophysicist, Sarah Seeger, talking about exoplanet discoveries. We've got Alan Stern, who ran the New Horizons probe out to Pluto and beyond, talking about that mission. Um, we've got a gentleman who runs another conference that I participated in called CI Live out in Iowa, who's also... One of the officers of the NSS named Anthony Paustian who's talking about the secrets of achieving anything great. A space doctor talking about space medicine named Shania Panda, Panda Shana Panda. And one of my favorites, Steve Jervison, who most people probably won't know the name, but he's a billionaire investor who put tons of money in a new space. He, he invested in SpaceX and they were about to, to go under in 2008. Uh, just a brilliant guy. I think I told you about it before. He got through Stanford Engineering in two and a half years by basically gaming the admissions computer system. Jeez, (laughs) He's that smart. And sitting with him for an hour in a room interviewing him, it's like all the air gets sucked out and the atmosphere becomes kind of electric. And he's just so excited about everything he's telling you. And he's got these incredible visions about the future of what he thinks is going to happen in the next 20 years. So that's really exciting. And then finally, Myself and Rob Manning, who's the chief engineer at JPL and was the chief engineer on all the Mars rover missions, I have kind of a smackdown session where I tell him, you know, when I was growing up, Mars was this really cool place with aliens and oceans, and, you know, we thought it was kind of like another Earth, and then you guys at JPL came along and ruined everything. (laughs) And then he builds the argument, because I'm a romantic at heart, right? He builds the argument, yes, but truth is better than fiction and supposition, and now that we've found the history of water there, we're building back your verdant Mars and blah, blah, blah. So it's great fun. And we had a big man hug at the end that agreed that we needed both sides of the story. So that'll be going on that day. And we will be on space.com on their website, and their YouTube channel. And we'll also be on the NSS YouTube channel and on uh, NSS Facebook live. And on Facebook live, we'll be as many of the speakers as we can get in. We'll be answering questions in the text box off to the side. So, if you want it to be interactive, go on Facebook Live.
1: Wow, there you go, and that's a day in space on July sixteenth. Yes, sir. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds really good. Really and,
2: and I expect a really pithy question from you about the Mothman or something. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure to I'll make sure to, to disrupt the uh, the whole thing with a Mothman Um Here's Big Ed on WGN. Go ahead, Ed.
2: Hi, Nick. Am Not coming in? Yes. Okay, hey, Rob, I just want to ask you a question. Sure. What happened to Skylab and Soyuz? Why didn't they uh, work out? Well, Soyuz is the, is the Russian spacecraft, so I think you're thinking about uh, MIR, which was their big space station before the International Space Station. So I'll take them one at a time. So Skylab was the first American space station, launched in 1973, had some problems. First crew went up and fixed it. And it was up there till seventy nine, I think. The idea was it was supposed to stay up long enough, and the shuttle was supposed to happen soon enough to go up and tow it to a higher orbit and keep it around for a few more years, because we could have gotten another ten years out of Skylab. It was a very, a very capable uh, space station and big. It was still to this day it was the largest single volume compressed space in in uh ever put up in orbit yeah I think it was 33 by uh 80 feet or something of that nature so it's big problem was the shuttle got delayed and there was a lot of solar activity happening in the late 70s much more activity happening from the sun than normal for that part of its cycle the solar cycle of activity and it caused the earth's atmosphere to actually inflate move out a little bit which caused just enough drag, the Skylab came down sooner than they expected. Yeah. Now, at that point, they didn't have any maneuvering control over it, so it was just a question of when it was going to come and where it was going to go. So I, I remember, I remember
1: Rod, I remember vividly people freaking out about where Skylab yeah. was going to fall. I mean, it was a big deal. People were like, oh, my God, where's it going to fall? Oh, my God. Because it was a big machine. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It yeah, was yeah. a very big machine. So that was that one. Murr um was uh, controlled the orbit, as I recall. And that was just it. Had lived out its useful life, and they had had a couple of fires on board, and the machinery was getting very old. So it was just time to deorbit it and bring it down.
1: Yeah. All right, Ed. Thanks for the call, buddy. Thanks, Ed. All right. Take care. Uh, yeah. So Skylab. Jeez. We had a uh, we have a um, um, a local uh, radio personality here named Steve Dahl. Yeah. And uh, when Skylab was the the big thing, he did a parody song. To uh, 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 to shattered by the Rolling Stones, and he called it Skylab, and it was all about freaking out about where Skylab was going to land. And it ended up in, in it ended up landing
2: in Australia, correct? Parts of it did, yeah, and and I mean, you probably remember that people were selling hats with bullseye on. The oh yeah, them, all that kind of stuff. No, yeah, and, yeah, you know, because you got to take these things tongue in cheek as possible. You can't control them, and then a couple, just a couple of years ago, that first Chinese base station, tangong One. Same thing. I was much smaller. It wasn't much bigger than a spacecraft, but they lost contact with that and couldn't bring it down in a guided fashion. So it re entered over the ocean, thank God. Yeah. And broke up into a few pieces. But yeah, there's you know, there's some responsibility and actually legally now, the legal framework says if you launched it, it's your problem so you gotta figure out what to do with it and that applies to Anything from microsat up to a space station. So we're trying to be more careful about these things. Yeah,
1: boy, I just yeah, but it was such a it was so so crazy. It was like the summer of '79, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, it was nuts. I just uh, it was nuts. It was like at the it was it was the top of the news story every hour,
2: every night. It yeah. was it was like COVID is now. Yeah,
1: yeah. It was just so crazy, and nobody was. Everybody was like, "Where's it going to fall? Is it was going to fall on our you know, can it fall on our house? You know." <laughs> Well, think of the insurance claim. Yeah. Jeez. No, that was weird. Yeah, Skylab. Brings back a lot of memories right there. Right. Yeah. All right, Rod, hang on, okay? You bet. All right, Rod Piles with us, uh, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra Magazine. Lots more space stories to talk about. And if you want to jump in, it's 312 981 7200 with your space comments or space questions. Rod's here to answer. 312 981 7200 on WGN. All right. Hello, Nick DiGillio here on Seven Twenty W G N. Live in the Skyline Studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. It's a Monday morning. That means my dad's going to call in and tell a joke because it's a jokey, jokey, jokey time. Uh, We're going to talk about outdated words that instantly age you. uh, Some expensive mistakes. And uh, my dad's going to call in and tell a joke. 312-981-7200 is uh, the number. Rod Pyle is with us and the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. And Rod is our space expert, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. Hello, Rod. Hello. All right. We have uh, another caller here. This is Hef
4: on WGN. Go ahead, Hef. Yes, uh, Rod. Uh, uh, I was wondering if any of the uh, astronauts or cosmonauts um, uh, who are in the uh, space station had joined the 200-mile high club. <laughs> and, and, and was it a, a official...
2: Or was it just fun in space? That's a good question. It's been asked a lot, and there is no official recorded act as of such. Uh Doesn't mean it hasn't happened because it is a co-ed facility. Right. But, you know, even though the space station is fairly large, the crew quarters are small, and you're separated in most cases by cloth or kind of a flimsy separator, so noise Carries pretty far, so you'd have to find a real dark, remote corner and be quick. And when you think about the, the the physics of it, you know things bounce away from each other in space. So, without getting too graphic here, you can imagine without some bungee cords, it might be kind of a challenge. <laughs> that said, one of the early uh, places to line up for a ticket when Virgin Galactic first announced that they were going to be doing suborbital rides that would give you six or seven minutes of weightlessness was Vivid Video in Los Angeles, uh-huh. my hometown, uh-huh. the premier purveyor of porn, and uh, they wanted to do some some space sex. But uh, <laughs> as far as I know, they were not sold tickets, and it never happened. <laughs>
1: this is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. All right, Hef, It'll thanks for the call. Someday. Thanks for the call, Hef. Uh, 312-981-7200. I never even thought of that. That, did, that never even occurred to me.
2: Nick, you got to think more. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. The well, 200-mile you know, hike. But it brings up another interesting question, which is if you can carry that off in zero-G, and this is something that's being studied fairly heavily, can you then gestate a baby and have a healthy child in, in no gravity or in low gravity? We just don't know because there's no way to simulate it on Earth. Yeah. So that's something they're going to have to figure out, probably with lab mice and, and other mammals, you know, before people start doing that kind of thing. But... If we're ever going to go out there and stay there, um, that's going to have to be a part of it, because people got to reproduce, and yeah. uh, it's it's a big concern. So it's an interesting question when you come right down to it. It
1: is, actually. I mean, I never. it didn't even occur to me, but, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, that's got to happen if you're going to spend a, a significant amount of time up there, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, a few extra arms and legs could be very handy to get things done quicker, but, you know, you want to know what you're getting in advance, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interesting question. I didn't I didn't know that was going to come up uh yeah. <laughs> That's going to come Good up luck. this morning. So, uh, <laughs> Rod Pyle is with us, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra Magazine. Check out rodpilebooks.com. Um, hey, Rod, when you were doing special effects on movies, wh- what kind of technology did you have back then?
2: Um, it was all analog. So, uh, we, the only computers we had, we had a computerized editing system, and we had a thing called the Harry, which was the name of a of, uh, very expensive. Um, effects machines, which you can do digital painting with. So that's what we used on on uh, DSpace9 to paint in phaser hits and force fields and all that. Yeah. But as far as the actual ships go, you had you built miniatures. I, I used to call them models, and they'd yell at me because they're not models, they're miniatures. And you'd mount them on a big metal stick, and you'd run the camera past them to make them look like they were flying past you. And then you had to do that, I don't know, six, seven, eight times one pass for the lights on the spaceship and one pass for the marker lights, and one pass for the lighting on the hull and all that. And then one of us would go into the post-production bay and layer all that stuff together to give you the final effect, which is why uh, the effect shots on older Star Trek were so short, because they're really expensive. And that's why you spend a lot of time cutting to the captain, bouncing around in his feet, looking like he's in the middle of a fight, because combat scenes cost a lot to make in those days. Mm. Wow. That was was fun. Yeah, I
4: bet
1: really fun. Yeah, I bet it was. Uh, Well, here's an interesting uh, call. Here's Warren on WGN. Warren, go ahead.
4: Hi there. Uh, Or you brought back some memories for me. I grew up in Hollywood. And uh, our house was in the Hollywood Hills, right? You know where I'm talking. We were in uh, Beechwood Canyon, directly yeah. across from the observatory, so we saw that out of our kitchen win- or dining window every day. But what I called about was uh, I dated Rocky Jones Space Ranger's daughter. <laughs> oh no kidding! When I was when I was in high school, we went to Hollywood High School uh, in the '60s. <laughs> And his name was Stephen Crane. He was yeah. a great guy, and um, we went out for for a while. And I'd bring her back, and we'd go in and would I'd talk with her parents and her and everything. But he told a story about one day he was having a phone installed in his house back, you know, the old landline days. Yeah. And the the uh, technician, the phone man, came in into the bedroom, and he you know kind of pushed. The bedroom door closed a little bit to do his work, and he looked up and he said, Now, what's that hanging from your bedroom door? And Stephen Crane said, Oh, that's my spacesuit. <laughs> he had brought home, for some reason, one of his uh, uh, pieces of wardrobe. And he was real dead serious with this telephone technician. And he said that guy could not get out of his house quick enough. <laughs> that is so funny. Now, did he really have
2: a Jaguar XK 120? Or was that just oh, a car?
4: I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of car they drove. They had a nice house, but uh, that yeah. was probably, uh, you know, for the movies, yeah. driving up to the, yeah. to the Griffith Park wow. Observatory. One, uh, one other thing in that series, the spaceships, rocket ships, took off vertically, and they came back and landed vertically. Like yeah, it uh, sounds familiar. Doesn't stages, it is, if you remember yeah. that, mm. and they came down. And I thought Elon, Musk, they should name the the uh, the space uh, patrol thing that we've got. <laughs> they ought to name the the soldiers the the uh, space rangers. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> correct. <Because> <laughs> that, that was a great series, though, boy. Because I was about I don't know ten. That was fifty two to fifty four. So um, I was yeah. nine, ten, eleven when that was on. But dating his daughter was. I mean, it was just something kind of natural if somebody was in this uh the business out there yeah. but he had some stories and that was the one that just stayed with me i can just see this poor telephone guy
1: yeah that's hilarious that is hilarious that's, warren that's that is that is great thank you so much
2: for the call
4: man, I'm sure they I'm they sure the show bye now bye. thank you
2: God, oh, that my Lord. Lord. I, I grew up, I don't know, 15 miles from Hollywood, and I never dated anybody at showbiz, <laughs> especially not an on-camera person. Maybe maybe Warren's just particularly good-looking. That's yeah. probably
1: it. Yeah. God, that's a, that's well, a, great, a story. great story. That's yeah, a great song. story. Yeah, that's great. You didn't think we'd be talking about this TV show then?
2: <laughs> I love all those old shows.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you know, we were talking about Lost in Space. Did you see the reboot that they did on Netflix?
2: Yeah, I I saw about half of the first season, and I thought, okay, I get it. This is clever. This is modern. They're doing all the right things. But it just didn't grab me. What did you think? I
1: felt the same way. Uh, uh, I felt the same way. I thought it was interesting that they cast Parker Posey as Dr. Smith.
2: Well, and having her as this megalomaniac, you know. That wants to do in everybody. So it kind of rounded out what, what you were talking about with the the pilot of the original show on the first couple episodes, where Dr. Smith was a pretty convincing bad guy. I mean, he was evil, and it was fun to watch. Yeah. And then he got silly. Stark opposed, he didn't, didn't get silly. But, um, yeah, it just it felt a little heavy-footed to me.
1: I agree. I totally agree. And then there was the movie back in the 90s.
3: Oh yeah, and uh, the, <laughs> you, you wait a minute. You like the movie, Tom? I used to love watching that because ca remember I was just a kid. Came out nineteen. 19- still just a kid. I mean, yeah. Gary Gary Oldman days. was Doctor Smith. Yeah, right? he was. Yeah. William Hurt was uh, oh, Professor Robinson. Right. Rod- is Mimi Rogers in it? Uh, she she so. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, Heather Graham's in it. Uh, Jared Harris. Of all oh, people. God, I
1: totally forgot about that.
3: Matt LeBlanc.
1: Oh, that's right, Matt LeBlanc. That, that's... Matt LeBlanc. <laughs>
3: There's a piece of casting for I you.
2: Can't,
1: I can't... Beautiful I casting. totally forgot that Matt
2: Beautiful LeBlanc was casting. in that. Okay, Tom, how many times did you watch it?
3: Oh, God, I think we had the VHS tape. So it was on a rotation of me as a kid. It was either The Lion King, Godzilla 1998, <laughs> yeah. uh, Lost in Space 1998, and, uh God, probably Twister. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> the the Roland Emmerich Godzilla? Yeah, it's rules, man. It's a terrible movie.
2: <laughs> Is that the one with all the little baby Godzillas?
3: Yeah, yeah, in Madison Square Garden. Oh, oh. it's a terrible movie. got, wake you got... me up when the popcorn's gone, man. <laughs> oh. <laughs> got Hank yeah. Azaria as uh, Animal. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the videographer. I mean,
1: my, isn't, uh, what's his name, Ferris Bueller in it?
3: Yeah. Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Matthew Broderick is in it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's He's right.
3: That's right. Who's the female lead? Oh, my God. Uh, she's kind of a no name. Um, I, don't, she, I I just, I remember hating it. That's the only thing. Oh, everybody I, hates I, it. I remember it's, hating that movie. Uh, Maria, I think it's Maria Patillo. Yeah. Okay. But um, Jean Renault. Oh, my God. As, as the leader of a f- bunch of French Foreign Legion mercenaries. <laughs> Because uh Harry Shearer. Not? Harry Shearer isn't it? God. It's great stuff. Oh Rod, is he no, nuts I, or I, what? I had a
2: friend who was uh living in Japan probably twenty five years ago, and while he was there they were filming, of course, another Godzilla movie, and the rubber costume was stolen from the set. Oh, which, no. I mean nothing gets stolen in Japan. If you leave a camera sitting behind Somewhere, you know, you go to a shrine and you leave and you forget your camera. This actually happened to me back in the 80s. I came back an hour later and there were people staying there guarding it until I came back. I mean, it's that kind of country, you know. So this became in national news. That, I bet. That the, the holy costume had been stolen and they said, please return it. Reward posted, no, no questions asked and all that. It was like the Lindbergh baby, you know. So it was this, this <laughs> costume, I thought. They take their Godzilla seriously. They and do. They, did you like the one... Maybe it was eight or ten years ago where they do the high altitude. There's been a Godzilla film made since oh, 2014. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you like that one?
1: I did. I like I, I like everything except for the role in Emmerich. I'm a big Godzilla guy. So yeah, I, uh, yeah. Rod, hang out, Okay. Okay. All right. Rod Pyle is with us. We got more space uh, stories to talk about. If you want to jump in, it's 312-981-7200 With any uh, space related question or uh, concept here. Rod Pyle, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. Check out rodpylebooks.com. And again, 312-981-7200 for your space-related questions. All right, it's time for the news. Too could have used a few pounds, tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a black beauty with big blue. D- eyes, and points all Nick
2: around. Nick
1: DiGiulio here on 720 WGN. We're live in the Skyline studio, 18 stories above beautiful downtown Chicago. We're here until 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock, we head over to uh, Bradley Place on the TV side of WGN. Get uh, some news and information from them. And then at 5 o'clock, it's the one and only Bob Surratt with your morning drive. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking about outdated words that instantly age you. Some expensive mistakes. Um, My dad's going to call in and tell a joke. And we've got Classic Carson. Uh, You can watch the Johnny Carson show every night on uh, Antenna TV. And we like to play a little comedy. Uh, from uh, the uh, Johnny Carson show Whether it be a, st- uh, a sketch or, or some stand-up or an interview Well, we've got some uh, classic stand-up From Franklin Ajay From 1988 A really terrific uh, comedian, Franklin Ajay Legendary guy 312-981-7200 is the phone number If you would like to join us Rod Pyle is our guest He's an author, journalist, editor-in-chief Of Ad Astra Magazine com is the website Hello, Rod Hello all right. We have another caller here. There's William on WGN. Go ahead, William.
4: Yes, I'd like to find out, why do they have running lights on the east, on the Starship?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think that started with the original Trek. That's the first time I remember seeing them anyway. And, and if you look at the scale of it, those running lights would have been the size of an RV or larger. I mean, they're huge. <laughs> uh, I saw the original Model from the first series in the Smithsonian about a year ago, and it's beautiful. It's a beautifully made model, but you're right. You look at it, you think, okay, there's a way out of scale, and why are they there anyway? I think it was just to go with the nautical theme and to make it look like other things from aviation at that time. And if you recall, you know, if if, like Nick and I, are old enough to remember when that thing was on, when that show was on the air the first time, nobody had really made that kind of a starship before. Everything prior to that looked like rockets, and we didn't see anything more revolutionary than that until 2001, Space Odyssey in 1968. So I think it was kind of this bridge mentality, if you will, of, okay, let's not take people too far out of reality. Let's keep this kind of nautical in in nature. But, uh, yeah, it was just a creative decision. In fact, uh, I think I've told you this before, Nick, on Battlestar Galactica, and they're getting ready to do the reboot on that. We were working on the the pre-visualization stuff. My partner came back from a meeting with the producers, very dejected-looking one day, and I said, what? And He said, well, they're changing the design of the Galactica again. I said, okay, what are we supposed to do this time? He said, they want it to look like it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, which I actually thought was kind of interesting, but um, that that got kicked to the curb pretty quickly. Oh, wow. I
1: always thought, I always thought the classic um, Starship Enterprise was just one of the coolest-looking ships ever. Yeah.
2: I did, too, although I have to say, and I'm a bit of biased because I, I worked with the 1701A miniature, but I loved that one. It was a little 59 Cadillac for a lot of people's taste, but, but I thought they really got it right with that one. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, William, thanks for the call. 312-9817-200. 312 Okay, um, let's talk about this story here. Uh, A House budget bill denies major increases for NASA to fund an ambitious moon program. What's
2: going on here? Yeah, we're kind of waiting for this. So the Trump administration, as you know, wants a landing on the moon by 2024. And NASA has said, great, we're all for it. We're going to need some money to do this right. So the administration was trying to stump for, I think, about $25 million, uh, excuse me, billion with a B for this year and and to be fair NASA's budget up until a couple years ago was like 17-18 billion so they've been getting some pretty healthy increases which makes people in my line of work very happy to see that uh, but uh, yeah they came back and said no we're we're going to give you less than that and the problem is the cut is almost entirely on the human exploration side and and the the bulk of it is for the lunar landers so what that means is Uh, they were hoping to scale up by 2023 to almost $30 billion. And if you do the conversions, that's about the same uh, in 2020 dollars as what they're spending on Apollo in the 60s. So it kind of makes sense. But um, with that cut, I think, and, and just to back up a step, NASA has already let contracts to three companies, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company from Amazon, SpaceX, and a company called Dynetics to start designing human landers for the moon, human-rated landers for the moon. Um, So the first step's already been taken, but as so often happens, we're kind of feeling a change in the wind here, and depending on who wins the election coming up, uh, this may or may not be good news for the program. So whatever you think of Trump, you know, he has been pro-space for whatever his reasons are, and, uh, so this is kind of a, 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 blow to the system here because it probably means it's going to be pushed back. I don't think they'll cancel Artemis outright, which is the landing program, but it'll push it back at least a full years because you just, a few years because you need money to do this. The advantage we have now, of course, is with Blue Origin and SpaceX in particular, they're both very rightly famous for putting their own money into the development of these things. So these are cooperative ventures as opposed to just being worked for hire like it was in the old days with the traditional aerospace contractors. But it's still expensive to, to design and operate and fly, and so this is going to be a major problem. Mm.
1: Uh, is there yeah. is there any silver lining to this?
2: Um Force deficiency, perhaps. <laughs> I'll have to figure out you know, one thing, and and this is just really off the cuff here because I don't see any any rationale for it on the side of of, of blue and the origin and SpaceX. But you know, there's a possibility that somebody like Musk might say, I, I, you know, I don't want to wait anymore. I was willing to do this on my own if I have to. I wanted to do it with NASA money, but I think I'll just keep pushing ahead. And he has been, he's been kind of bifurcated already because he's flying cargo for years and now crew up to the space station on his smaller rockets, but as you know, he's still designing Starship with the other half of the company, more than half. And they're working double triple ships and they're working really hard to get that thing to fly. So if he's successful with the Starship, which is his larger the Saturn V two stage uh rocket that has a huge cargo capability if he develops that on his own and the government can get a deal then maybe they can press it in service and move away from the SLS and the Orion capsule because that is also a big expense because those things have been dragging their feet for a decade now mm, okay
1: all right well um, is, does it does it seem lot does it seem doable to, to, to get to the moon by 2024
2: Honestly, it would be really tough. I mean, we don't even have spacesuits designed yet that can do that. We don't have the Apollo suits around anymore, and they would obviously update that design. They have been updating that design. But in terms of a real EVA-rated suit, something you can go out and do operations on the lunar surface for uh, days at a time with, which is what we want to do now because we don't want to dash and come home. We want to stay there. Um, That's years off and, and many hundreds of millions of dollars away. So that's just one example. I mean, long-term life support, being able to land a heavy structure on the lunar surface uh, that you can live in for weeks or months or years at a time. And on top of all this, we're trying to go to the South Pole because that's where we're pretty sure the water ice is. So it takes more fuel and more work to get people down to the poles it does mm. the equator. That was kind of the easy, low-hanging fruit. So right, right. It's going to be tough. Okay. In either right. scenario.
1: Okay. All right, Rod, hang on. Yeah, Rod Pyle is with us, uh, uh, author, journalist, editor in chief at Ad Astra magazine. Uh, and uh, if you have a space related question, we would love to hear from you at 312 981
4: 7200. You're looking kind of lonely, girl. Would you like someone new to talk to? Right.
1: Nick the here on 720W. Is that Dr. John? Right. Dr. Hook. Dr. Hook. And the Medicine Show.
3: If it were Dr. John, it probably sounded a little like this. Yeah. I, mean, I knew it was a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Not Dr. Feel Good. Nope.
1: Uh, it's Nick DiGilio here on 720 WGN, uh, live in the Skyline studio. We're here until 4. Coming up at 2.30, we got some uh, comedy from the classic Johnny Carson show. You can watch uh, the Johnny Carson show every night on antenna TV. Uh, we get some uh, great stand-up from 1988 with Franklin Ajay. My dad's going to call in and tell a joke because it's Monday. Uh, right now we're talking with Rod Pyle, who is uh, author, journalist, and editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine, rodpylebooks.com. If you want to check out his books, and if you have any questions uh, about space or anything like that, three one two nine eight one seven two hundred. Hello, Rod. Hello. All right. So let's talk about this. Is um, this Roscosmo? Roscosmo.
2: Roscosmos Ros- yeah. Cosmos is, or is over there. I guess they say Roscosmos.
1: Ah, they're going to send two tourists to the space station in uh, twenty twenty three, and one of them will will spacewalk.
2: Yeah. No. <laughs> talk about an experience that could put your stomach up in your throat so the russians have actually been the only one so far to fly tourists into space and and something they've done well they work with an american company called space adventures so they flew tourists up to, to Mir, and uh the last tourist up to the iss was 2009 i think uh, but, you know, they've got this quandary now, which is we're using SpaceX and we'll soon hopefully be using Boeing to ferry American astronauts up the space station with our own spacecraft, which means we're no longer paying just over $80 million per seat to fly American astronauts in the Soyuz. So when you have a budget that is only about $2 billion, which is what the Russians have, I, I keep thinking, you know, I go back and bookland in my head and I keep wanting to say Soviet Union. It's not Soviet Union, it's the Russians. When you've got a budget of $2 billion, $80 to $100 million that a crack adds up. So that's a big chunk of revenue they're losing every year. So it makes sense to crank up the tourist flights. And on the U.S. side, NASA finally said, okay, we're going to do that too. And uh, they're going to start doing that in fairly short order here. The question is, so you've got these people up there. They're taking up room. They're breathing air. They're eating food. How much do you train them? And what do you have to do while they're up there? Do you actually assign them tasks or are they joyriding? And that's something that has been a little different in, in the case of each person that's gone up so far. So that's just to go up and visit the interior. Now you're going out on a spacewalk, which is inherently many, many times more risky than just staying in the space station yeah, because yeah. you're just transferring from a docked spacecraft. So now you're, you're going into a fully VA suit. You're going to go outside. What is not clear to me yet is whether they're going to have any duties to perform, but these guys train, you know, before they go up to do a mission where they're going to do an EVA, and you've seen the EVAs; they go on for hours and hours, and they replace components and so forth. They train for months or years before then in the neutral buoyancy tank in Houston, which is that huge multi-million gallon tank they've got in these weighted spacesuits so they've got at least some simulation of gravity and some feel for what they're going to be approaching as you go into wrench? you in space you turn a wrench and the wrench stays in one place and you float in a circle you know yeah, so there's yeah. a lot to know and so we don't know yet who's going to train them or how extensive it's going to be so it's exciting but uh it would scare me to death
1: yeah i can imagine i i, I don't know i mean that just seems i mean we, how do you how do you train for a spacewalk
2: well that's what i was talking about the neutral buoyancy tank so yeah. it's a big huge water pool And it's about as close a simulation as you can get. The only problem is, of course, water has resistance, and a vacuum of space doesn't. But at least you've got a sense of weightlessness and and, and, uh, a generally convincing simulation of it. And that was what, uh, in the early days, back in the Gemini era, back in 65, 66, when they finally got spacewalking right, because they wanted to figure out, can we do work outside the spacecraft? And it wasn't until Gemini 12, the last flight, which Buzz Aldrin flew on, that they were able to actually get all the assignments done because he, largely on his own, as I understand it, just decided, okay, I've got to do this underwater training because clearly what we're doing isn't working, and um, that was what made all the difference in the world. So it's very effective, but it's also really expensive.
1: Yeah, well, um, uh, you know, for the for the tourists, what are they what do they have to pay?
2: I don't know what they're paying the Russians. Uh, it was in the. 20 to 30 million dollar range before uh i know if you're going up on the nasa ride it's going to be 52 million dollars to the uh flight provider which would most likely be spacex for the next number of years and then i think it's 35 or 40 thousand dollars a day while you're on the station which is not very expensive if you're a really rich person right uh, it's just the getting there getting back is pretty pricey Jeez.
1: all right well we'll see yeah you. keep an eye on what's going on over there in russia
2: you want to go uh, no. Okay, you want to think
1: <laughs> about that for a minute? <laughs> nope. Done. Oh man. Um, all right. I uh, we have to talk about this. There's a perfume that smells like outer space.
2: Ode oh, to space. Ode oh, to Did I space. Say that right. I think yeah. so. So this chemist who's done some other fragrances has started a Kickstarter campaign, which has already raised two hundred thousand dollars. You saw the article. I was kind of stunned when I saw that. Yeah trying to reproduce what space might smell like. Now, of course, this raises the immediate question of uh, how do you smell in a vacuum? and What does a vacuum smell like? Well, there's nothing there except very tiny trace amounts of atmosphere, so it probably smells like the upper atmosphere, if anything. But regardless, he is, he is moving on undeterred. So apparently the scents that he is working with are gunpowder smell, burnt steak, raspberries, and gum with a little bit of sweat and uh, oil. So the idea behind the gunpowder is that's what moon dust smells like. I'm not quite sure. I guess maybe they're simulating space if you're on the moon, you know, because the astronauts often said that's what, what moon dust smelled like. As far as the other stuff, these are various accounts from astronauts that have been on the space station, but it's Chris Hadfield, who's the famous Canadian astronaut that you know played his guitar and sang while he was up at the space station. He made a very good point, which is what occurred to me when I was reading the story, which is, what you're smelling is when you come back at the airlock, when you open up your helmet, right? So inside your helmet, you're smelling yourself, which after eight hours of hard work is probably kind of fragrant. And then you open the visor, and what you're smelling in the airlock, which has been exposed to a vacuum, is whatever's outgassing from the airlock. So it could be... Uh, you know, a, a odor from the, the rubber seals. It could be an odor from various machine th- machine components that have been oiled and so forth. So it makes sense that it would smell more like machines than it would like something else. But but that's the list of things that he's combining to do it. And it's novel. Uh, one of the person said that space, space smelled sulfurous to her. Okay. Which kind of puts sort of a dark spin on the whole thing. But yeah. All right. Now, is this
1: going to be? Is this going to be available in stores? If that's, is that the plan? That's the plan.
2: Wow. Because why not? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it would make more sense to me to. to yeah, what I'd like to try is making a, a, a men's cologne out of Venus. Out of Venus. Yeah, because Venus is really an incredibly toxic place with acid rain and. A really nasty atmosphere full of methane and other awful things that you can't breathe at 900 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you could make this stuff with uh, with various perfume scents and then an acid base, so it burned your skin when you put it on, so you felt like you're standing at 900 degrees. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think I'm going to do well on Kickstarter, but it's just a thought.
1: Yeah, I don't think that that's. Uh, I don't know if that's going to work out.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: it's an idea. It's yeah, yeah. It's just spitballing. I have lots of bad ideas. <laughs> oh boy! Okay, so ode oh, to space,
2: ode yeah. to space,
1: ode to space. The perfume that like behind
2: the ear will do you. Yeah. That's it.
1: Uh, the The Kickstarter campaign has over four thousand six hundred uh, backers. Yeah, and almost two hundred thousand it, dollars.
2: It, it's it's astonishing. And the interesting thing about Kickstarter, if you ever consider doing a campaign on there, is depending on the kind of project you're doing, you have to do a lot of fulfillment of tchotchkes and gifts and gimmies and all oh, the right. that you give everybody for the money right. for the money they're putting in and quite often when you run the dollars out plus kickstarter's overhead and everything you're not left with that much but i think in this case it's going to do pretty well
1: yeah it, so- it sounds like it
2: i mean frankly i'd rather just burn a steak and rub a little fat behind each temple and you know you're 80 percent of the way there but yeah. uh, i guess this is doing it the right way
1: uh do we have a time frame on when this is going to be released didn't see it no
2: okay are you are you anxious uh no
1: okay, <laughs> Ode to space, just
2: curious, yeah, The
1: perfume that smells like outer space,
2: yeah, all right I want a perfume that smells like cosmonauts <laughs> you could call it swarthy just single the single names work best and are just swarthy
1: swarthy is it's one of my that's actually one of my favorite names one of my, my favorite words
2: isn't it a great word oh swarthy it's, sort of it's, it's
1: just the yeah. be, it's the best. Have you right, ever so been called swarthy? I've never been <laughs> never been called swarthy. I'm pretty much the opposite of swarthy. I can I can tell you. I was you
2: called that. stately once and it was not a compliment I realized. Stately. Yeah. Well, who called you stately? Uh somebody who I think was trying in a not very concealed way to make fun of my slightly wide aspect. <laughs> Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> you think of houses when you think stately, and I thought, oh, it looks like. It. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Nice. All right.
1: Well, uh, ode to space. Uh, you're looking. Yeah. Looking forward to that perfume. All right. There's there's, your, there's a new Mother's Day gift coming out right there.
2: Hey, do we have a second to yep. talk about something uh, that was we, on the th- list?
1: Let's take a qu- let's take a quick break, okay, Rod? Okay. And we'll sure. jump right back to what you want to talk about. Uh, Rod Pyle is with us. Uh, Rodpilebooks.com, author, journalist, editor in chief of Ad Astra Magazine. If you have any space related questions or comments, it's 312 981 7200. And uh, we'll jump back into the conversation after this. <laughs> Nick Julio here on 720 WGN. We are live in the Skyline studio here until 4. Um, we are going to uh, be talking about um, outdated words that instantly age you, some expensive mistakes. My dad's going to call in and tell a joke later on. And we've got some Carson comedy classic with Franklin Ajay stand-up from 1988. Right now, we are chatting with our good friend Rod Pyle, who is an author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. You can check out rodpilebooks.com. if you have any space related questions. Give us a uh, give us a call, 312-981-7200. We would love to hear from you. Okay, Rod, you wanted to say you wanted to you wanted to uh, say something, right?
2: Yeah, I want to talk about the comet deal-wise for a second because it's been in the news. Okay. So this uh, is something that that the average person can go look for. I've tried twice, but I'm down in San Diego right now where there's a fair amount of city light, so I have not been successful yet. But uh, the best nights, they're saying, are July 11th, 12th, and 13th. So it's coming right up. And uh, if you go out about an hour before sunrise, which is perfect for you, and look to the northeast, and if you, get, if you can get on your, uh, on your smartphone one of those constellation apps that you know superpose constellations over the direction you're looking, you're looking for the constellation Auriga, which is A-U-R-I-G-A. And there will be this, what looks like a fairly bright star, but if it's very dark or you have a pair of binoculars, you'll be able to see this long tail extended behind it. And it's this this comet called Comet Neowise, which is swinging around the sun right now, or has one around the sun, I should say. And um, that's the material, because comets are basically ice with some rock, but, but mostly ice. That Because you've seen the movies, right? So you know this already. They can be blown up with dynamite. And... Um, this is the, the ice being vaporized and streaming off in this long tail. And then between the 14th and 19th, apparently, it will be visible just after sunset.
1: Oh, okay. And
2: this is the best one since about 1998, and we probably won't see another one like this for years in terms of just something you can go out and you don't have to know exactly where to look and just go, oh, look, there's a comet right there. So oh, cool. Exciting. Yeah.
1: All right, very cool. Let's get some somebody uh, get out there and take a look in the sky. Um, how, how often do cool things happen in the sky that we that we should
2: see? Well, it kind of depends on what you classify as cool. So every year we have a dozen or more small meteor showers, which are the Earth and the Earth's orbit is going past an old trail of a defunct comet. And they're basically kind of spread out gravel banks. And as that stuff enters the atmosphere, you see some meteors. Most of them are pretty small. But in the summer and the winter, almost six months apart, They're the Perseids and the Orionids, and the the name just means what constellation they appear to come from. And uh, those are generally two of the best ones. You can see a meteor every minute or so. It helps to go somewhere dark, but you can even do it from within the city. Most of them are pretty small. They just look like a little, about that fast, little little streak of white light. But occasionally you'll get a bigger rock coming in here the size of a marble or a golf ball, and it'll actually burn for a while and make a pretty spectacular show. And sometimes they explode because they've got little gas pockets in them or irregularities and they actually blow up while they're coming in. So you can get a pretty good view of it. So that's every month or two, there'll be some kind of meteor shower happening. Other than that, it kind of depends on what turns you on. You know, we get lunar eclipses a couple times a year. We got solar eclipses, uh, good ones anyway, maybe a couple times a decade, depending on how far you're willing to travel. We got one coming up in, I think it's 2024, which is going to be going through your neck of the woods. And, um, if you've never seen a total solar eclipse, that is one of those stand still and be transformed moments. I've only seen one, but it was unbelievable because you're looking at this ever diminishing sun. Well, through solar glasses, hopefully, so you don't burn out your retinas. Right. And then the next thing you know, it hits totality and everything gets very quiet. The temperature drops, the animals start freaking out around you because they think, wait, how did it become nighttime so soon? Right, right, right. You know, the crickets start chirping and all that, but the whole sky kind of takes on this almost kind of silvery aspect, and it's really quite an ama- one of the most amazing natural things I've ever seen. Yeah,
1: yeah I've, I've, uh, I've, I've witnessed that. It's pretty amazing.
2: And the other thing I'd say is if you've got a pair of binoculars, a small telescope, I, personally, I never get tired of looking at the moon because it's so close and large enough that you really feel like you're exploring the surface from here you know with mars even with a big telescope you get kind of a fuzzy red ball but with the moon you you can really see the, especially at the at the right phase you can see the shadows being cast by mountains and crater rims and so forth and really just get an incredible sort of if you will walking tour of the moon in your mind even with just a pair of binoculars is all it takes
1: yeah you know, uh, i i've never really asked you this i don't think i've ever asked you this before rod do you do you
2: recommend certain telescopes
1: you know, I haven't
2: kept up with it in the last few years. There's a lot, they're a lot cheaper than they were when you and I were young, when you were dropping, you know, $1,200 for a decent eight inch telescope, because um, there's so much stuff coming in for China and the lenses are much easier to make now and so forth. Celestron is always a good bet. Uh, they've been around for about 50, 40, 50 years and they make very good telescopes. But, you know, anything with a Decent mount. What you don't want is something that just has an up-down, side-to-side, or what we call alpha-azimuth mount. You want an equatorial mount. Because with the traditional mounts, if it doesn't have a a computerized drive on it, you have to keep nudging it up and sideways and up and sideways to track things because the rotation of the Earth. And depending on what latitude you're at, it has to be set for that at an angle. So what they call an equatorial mount, which you can look up on Amazon Telescope Equatorial Mount, will automatically track things. And then if it's got a computer drive on it, which you can get for just a few hundred dollars nowadays, the whole package, telescope with a computerized drive, you just punch in the code of what you want to see. And if you've got it aligned to north properly, it goes zip, zip, and there you are looking at the Andromeda Galaxy. So they really have come a long way.
1: Wow. Wow. So, that's I mean, I, I guess I didn't even realize that they were computerized now.
2: Yeah. And, and I first saw that, and I, you know, being kind of a, an old school astronomer from when I was younger, I'm like, that's cheating. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's really nice because you used to have to have a, a, a book called The Ephemeris, and you looked it up. You'd look up what you wanted to see, you'd look up the date and your latitude. And try and figure out, you know, the right coordinates. And you'd look at these little tiny things called setting circles with tiny impossible to read numbers with the red flashlights. They didn't read your night vision. Then you had to set it and look through the spotter scope and hope you were kind of in the right quadrant and all that. Nowadays, you just put in the digits and boom, you're there. And, you know, on a uh, cool summer evening, nothing better.
1: Wow. Okay. Be, we've come a long way, huh? By a telescope.
3: <laughs> uh, Tom, you ever have a telescope? Yeah, but I never really knew how to use it. I had I, I I had this dream of being a scientist when I was young, after watching the movie Flubber. <laughs> after Flubber? what <laughs> Flubber? Yeah, with Robin the Williams. Flubber, I guess. Though. Yeah, yeah, the one with Robin Williams. I was really yeah. into. I was really into that, and I was like, I really want to oh, be cool. a scientist. Uh, so, I got one of those fun little kits. That's like a. Uh, it was a microscope, but it had a screen on it, so um, it was easier for like a kid to see. Yeah, because I was quite young and I had a telescope, but I don't think I ever really set it up right. Um, so I couldn't really see anything out of it, but I had it there and I would try every once in a while to look at something. And
1: <laughs> It was re- it
3: was there, just there for show? Kind of,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's what you have when you finally are rich enough to get that beach house. You always have exactly. to have a telescope on the window. Exactly. Yeah, you know, Nick, you know what Tom never did have, though, I'll bet? Uh, the, that cool chemistry set we had as kids where they well, would give you... Powdered magnesium and yep. other stuff that would burn really well.
1: Yep, we've we've talked about this before, Rod. About how yeah. uh, it's
4: it's, it's, a, it's amazing. Mine, yeah. It's
1: amazing that people around our age are are alive.
2: That still have their fingers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because dishonest. it's like, just
1: it's it's uh, a and, and you know sometimes Tom, you just you, you're like, no, it's not real. You're making this up. No.
3: I know. <laughs> well, there. I think uh, maybe it was our pal Trucker Rich maybe mentioned or someone mentioned that at one point they had stuff that may have been even radioactive like low level low levels of radiation or things Radia. that were yeah, radium yeah. yeah so it's like why would you ever put that in something for children they might they might just eat it oh listen kids just eat stuff I, right? mercury
1: it's it's ama- oh, yeah God. mercury i mean it's a ama- it's amazing the 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 kind of the kind of stuff that we had when we were kids it's it's insane
2: I was cleaning my garage a few months ago and I found the, the the set inside is gone but I found the folding metal box from my first Gilbert chemistry set. <laughs> and it has this young very white reddish looking kid with a red sweater vest and a bow tie on paint you know printed on the front of it with a couple of test tubes looking very serious and I thought I don't remember ever looking like that. I was just trying to make stuff blow and blow up and burn. Yeah, that's, <laughs> those were always the first chemicals you used up. You didn't care about all that other stuff. But yeah. you the things that burn and make a exactly big yeah. that's
1: exactly right. Yeah, the, every every everybody our, our age, you know, around our age or something. You're a little older than I am, uh, Rod. But uh, hey, don't rub it in. We yeah. had the, we had the chemistry set. We we yeah. had the chemistry set and a wood burning kit.
2: Yes, that was another one. Yeah. There were a lot of toys that were really dangerous back then. That either had heating elements or projectiles, or that uh, that air gun that you could blow up people's eardrums with. Right. I mean, it, it is you're right. It's amazing that we survived with all our, our fingers and both eyes.
1: Yeah, the, the the wood burning kit to me is ast- it, it's, it's it's astonishing. It's 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 basically a soldering iron. Yeah, like you're you're giving a seven year old a solder. I had a wood burning kit when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean it's just you didn't even think about it. You didn't even think twice about it. Back in the late 60s early 70s it's like, yep, just give, give the kid a give, give the kid a soldering iron. He's got to learn somehow. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so you slowly run it along this panel of wood to make a picture and it's it's like, why don't you just give the kid a felt tip pen. It looks the same. Yeah. But he's not going to sit down on the carpet and then have a three alarm fire in 15 minutes, which yeah. is what almost happened to me. Oh, is
1: that right? Really, is that right?
2: Yeah, I set it down, and I got distracted because I was a pretty heavily ADD kid, and wandered off. And the next thing I came back, and there was this big hole melted in our brand new <laughs> plastic carpeting from the '60s. And I thought, "Oh, that's gonna smart with my parents." Not shit. good. So I started cutting good. fibers from other parts of the carpet and started trying to glue them into the spot so it wouldn't show. <laughs> No. It uh, wasn't successful. I was going to no. say, how'd that work out for you, Rod? It didn't work out well. It was yeah. like the time we broke the window and tried to glue it back together. It just didn't work. <laughs> I <laughs> had a very understanding older sister that was uh, my, my partner in crime for yeah. these things. Well,
1: yeah. At least you had a partner in crime. I'm an only. Yeah. I'm an only child, so... All the
3: crimes were done by you, and exactly. you alone. no
1: accomplices. <laughs> nobody else got blamed. Nobody else could be blamed. It's like, hey, you're the only kid here.
2: <laughs> That's true. There's nobody to point at. It There's is. nobody. No. Nope. Of that, you can't you can't. That's oh, it, man. man. You get blamed for everything. <laughs> so Does that mean you're like Uber accountable as an adult? No. <laughs> okay, just checking. <laughs> <laughs> i figured i had that one now
1: tom's tom's losing it in there you're
2: laughing a little too hard <laughs> yeah, pal. sorry no <clears throat> he's enjoying this more than he really you're, said. La- you're laughing a
1: little too hard okay uh rod hang on because we got to talk about some uh dino killing ice spewing earth destroying asteroids <laughs> okay all right hold on rod Rod Pyle is with us. If you want to jump in, if you have a question uh, or a comment concerning space, 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. Always great to have Rod Pyle on. Check out Rodpilebooks.com. Dick DiGiulio here on 720 WGN. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to be talking about outdated words that instantly age you. Classic Carson clip from uh, Franklin Ajay and uh, some stand-up there. My dad's going to call in and tell a joke. And our phone lines are open at 312-981-7200. And the news is next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom. Rod Pyle is with us, author, journalist, editor-in-chief at Ad Astra Magazine. Check out rodpilebooks.com. Hello, Rod. Yes, sir. All right, let's talk about some of these uh, insane asteroids, many of which I can't pronounce.
2: You ha- well, I know which one you're talking about in particular. I've been struggling that one for years. So, yes, we'll call this, this segment Nick's Asteroid Lust. <laughs> yeah. so where do you want to start?
1: Uh, well, let's start with um, the Tunguska Impact Asteroid.
2: Yeah. So Tunguska event, as they call it, was 1908, and this was in Siberia. And it's an area of about 830 square miles that was just wiped out. Jeez. Millions of trees were destroyed. Um, it was kind of—it wasn't a crater, but it was just—it looked like a blast radius. And there were not many people there then, so as far as we know, there were no deaths, or maybe just a handful of uh, what I suppose they would have called peasants in the day. But it was this enormous, either impact or explosion. So it's been theorized as everything from a comet to a meteor to a, a miniature black hole. The most convincing, I mean, the explanations, depending on who you ask, are all over the map, but uh, one of the more convincing ones is that it might have been either an airburst, you know, a meteor that came in and then exploded overhead and took out this big chunk of territory or even a glancing blow by something that uh, entered the atmosphere and then bounced off and left but, but left this big shockwave behind. But uh, one theory says the meteor could have been as big as 330 feet in diameter that exploded overhead, which would have resulted in an explosion of somewhere between 3 and 30 megatons, which is big. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's big. Oh. All right. What about the
2: Behold the Dino Killer? There's something along those lines. C H I. X-L-U-B, right. because if you're going to name it, name it something weird, right? Right. So that uh, was a, an asteroid, we think, somewhere between 70 and 50 miles wide. That's a pretty big range. Jeez. It hit in the Yucatan Peninsula about 66 million years ago, which is, as you point out, what ended the reign of the dinosaurs. Um, whichever size it was, it was probably big enough to cause a global tsunami and, of course, horrible atmospheric disturbance, which would have poisoned a, a lot of things uh, just by changing the atmospheric balance, and then, of course, all the darkness, um, which would destroy crops and things that, they're not crops, sorry, but the, the plants and fauna, that the flora that these things need to eat. So you have this kind of nuclear winter, and the crater is just under 100 miles in diameter, and you can see it from orbit. It's really clear. It's this big ring that's mostly underwater now. And, um, yeah, and that's what let the tree shrews climb down out of the branches and become us. Because if something hadn't taken the dinosaurs out, we'd probably, you know, they'd be our masters. Wow. We'd be their pets or something.
1: Okay. What about the 243 Ida?
2: So this is an image by the Galileo Jupiter probe in 1994. And it's out uh, between Mars and Jupiter. Average diameter is about 20 miles, but it's kind of lumpy. You think most of the asteroids are very strange shapes. They're not spherical. They're, they look like, you know, melted potatoes or something. And uh, the only thing that really makes it remarkable, besides the fact that we were able to image it fairly close up, because Galileo happened to be passing by the neighborhood at the time, is it has a small new moon orbiting it called Dactyl. Ah. Oh. <laughs> which kind of sounds dinosaurian in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next on the list is Vesta. Yeah. Which is one of the, the major asteroids out in the asteroid belt. So the asteroid belt is this big ring of junk pre-planetary junk in between uh, Mars and Jupiter, and it it almost looks like a, a huge ring of Saturn, but it, it girdles the whole solar system. Uh, so Vesta was uh, first imaged by the Dawn mission, DAWN, back in 2011, and it's, uh, it's a, a big sucker. It's 326 miles diameter. <laughs> and even though it's, it, I mean, that's large, but it's not that large as, as planetoids go. But uh, what makes it kind of remarkable is it's got a mountain on it that's higher than Mount Everest. So when you scale that to the size of the asteroid, that's a really big mountain on a very small asteroid. It kind of looks like something out of The Little Prince, you know? Yeah. And it's the second largest after Ceres, which is the next in the list. So Ceres, because of its size and shape, qualifies as the only dwarf planet the size of Neptune. Of course, we all remember that Pluto was demoted to dwarf planet status amidst much controversy. The first asteroid discovered, it's the largest in the asteroid belt at 580 miles diameter. It's the only one that is a naturally occurring spherical object uh, of the asteroids uh, formed by its own gravity because of its mass. So the Dawn probe uh, went at orbit around that in 2015. And that was really interesting because they discovered uh, salty ice brines on the surface. And they thought, what the heck is that doing out here in an asteroid? Because we always thought, you know, for a long time, the asteroids were just dry rocks. Right, so they're they're junk that hasn't that didn't form into a planet. Turns out it's got kind of a complex structure. There's there's ice down below, and it's actually one of the first places we saw cryovolcanoes, which are volcanoes that erupt ice. Um, and they discovered organic molecules on the surface. So this is where the solar system starts getting really interesting because now you're seeing things that you can't really explain and you didn't expect there, like. Organic, you know, things that are predecessors to life, potentially, on the surface. And you start asking questions about how how did that get there and what's the next step and how many steps between that and bacteria and mosquitoes and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a really interesting place.
1: Okay. Uh, next one is... Yeah, hold on, Rod. Rod hold on yeah. a second, because we got a couple calls okay. here. Here's Lena on oh, WGN. Go okay. ahead, okay. Lena.
4: Hey, Rod, I always enjoy it when you're on for, um, for these Thank segments. You. I have a question about the black hole. The miniature black hole that you brought up, I didn't understand that.
2: So apparently, and, and as Nick knows, I'm not an astrophysicist, so I'll do the best I can here, but black holes are scalable as natural phenomenon, at least in theory. And they're so uh, so incredibly dense, if you will. Dense. Uh, they're not a solid right. object, but I mean, they're this, this basically this pinprick in space. So right. if this black hole came down, I mean, it could be the size of you know, a thumbtack head, or much smaller, potentially. But because of all the, the forces at work there, if that came into contact with a planet, it would be a very bad day. So that's how that, that theory runs. I don't think that's widely accepted. I think it's more widely accepted. It was probably either a big rock or a chunk of ice. But well, that's, that's something we see I a lot. Because,
4: yeah, because it seems like, I mean, the density of a black hole is just, like, infanimal to most, I, I think, all of us. So it yeah, has to be yeah. so minuscule
2: <laughs> to yeah, not have the planet. Like a yeah, so I think that's. I just brought that up because it's one of the interesting outliers in in the in those theories. But you know, if you look at the far side of the moon versus the near side of the moon, you can see what a disaster zone the early solar system was because it's just beat to hell and back. It's just yeah. totally cratered every square inch of it. And as Neil Armstrong observed when he first got up there in '69. If you get down and look at the surface of the moon, no matter how close you get, you keep seeing smaller and smaller craters all the way down to micro pits. So it's just been impacted for for billions of years, and we we realize just how much junk there was flying around the solar system in those early days. And so it's a lot of it's still out there, which is why we got to watch out for asteroids that come whizzing past the Earth because some of them are dangerous. Yep.
1: Okay, uh, Lena, thanks for the call. Here's James hey, on WGN. Go ahead, James.
2: Yeah. I've got a question. Why couldn't the old shuttle be used? Of course, it has to be updated, but you'd have to increase the tank by a third and put a couple more boosters onto it. You'd have to increase it, that way you'd have fuel, and you could repeal it while it was in space. Why so that work? the problem with the shuttle is it was kind of a closed-end design. It was supposed to be cheaper than Apollo. It was supposed to be reusable, fully reusable, and it was neither of those things. It ended up being more expensive than the Saturn V to fly and only partially reusable. But that technology doesn't scale well. And this is something Elon Musk found out with the Falcon Heavy. He thought he was just going to slap together three Falcon rockets and have this big mega booster. Turns out it takes a lot more engineering than that. And finally, the shuttle was kind of operating at the extreme edge of the technology of the era as it was. So I think scaling it up the way you're talking about Well, it makes sense on the surface. You start getting into problems of scale when you do that, and things just don't work as well anymore. Uh, So it was kind of operating about as well as it could, given that design. And just to be fair to NASA, that wasn't their original design intention. That was the result of Nixon's incessant budget cutting in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's why they had this compromised design.
1: Okay. All right, James, thanks for the call. All right, Rod, let's get uh, back uh, to uh, to to a few more of these asteroids.
2: Okay, which one do you want next?
1: Uh, Let's go to uh, 162173.
2: Ryugu. Ryugu. So this was uh, an asteroid that was uh, explored by Japan's Hayabusa 2 probe just last year. And not much remarkable about it, except that we've been to it. And it shot a projectile into the surface and watched what happened, and then also picked up a sample, so it's returning to Earth with a sample now which is going to be interesting to see what these sort of primordial bits of the solar system are like, because this is really like walking into the biggest, it's the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're walking into the (laughs) Museum of the Solar System's early days. Uh, Bennu is uh, the target of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is a NASA ESA mission. It arrived in 2008, it's orbiting now, it's still investigating, it's going to do a sample return in 2023. Bennu has the distinction of being a potentially hazardous object for Earth, it's got a 1 in 2,700 chance of impacting between 2,175 and 2,199, so we don't care. But it's 1,600 feet wide, so that could be a big, nasty, five-mile-wide crater taking out a better part of the state by the time you account for all the shockwave effects and stuff. Here's my favorite, Didymus and Diddy Moon. Okay. So this is, uh, besides the fact that it's cute, so it's a fairly large asteroid with a fairly small moon going around it, What's remarkable about this one is that the target for the DART mission, the double asteroid redirection test mission, which is going up uh, either next year or the year after that, and they're going to basically slam a spacecraft into Diddy Moon, the smaller of the two, to see if they can deflect it, just to get a handle on if we do see uh, the dangerous asteroid coming our way in the future, you know, what kind of technology intervention can we do to try and keep it from hitting Earth? So the earlier you... You deflect them, obviously, the, the, the wider the vector that they'll miss earth by. Well, then we have the uh, lyrically named 2019 OD, which is the size of a 747. What made it unique is that it passed Earth inside the diameter of the lunar orbit in 2018, mm. and that's somewhere between 200 and 400 feet in diameter, so that would be a bad afternoon. Uh, 99, uh, Sorry, nine ninety nine forty two Apophis. Uh, will pass within 19,000 miles of Earth in 2029. So now you're really coming down close, mm. too close for comfort for a lot of people. Yeah. That's 1,100 feet across. So, again, a very large crater in the order of many miles and would wipe out something between the size of a county and a small state. And then, of course, you've got all that stuff blown up in the atmosphere. So besides the area that it actually caused all this destruction yeah. in, It also causes terrible atmospheric effects and crop loss and all that.
1: Rod, we're out of time. Yes, sir. We're out of time. Okay. But uh, thank you, Rod Pyle, everybody. Uh, Let's uh, go, go to the news.